You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Everett Bobbeth covers Jonah 1 and 2. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Well, I'm not Adam. You probably noticed already. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Everett. I'm one of the elders here. And over the next uh, few weeks, Adam's uh, out of town. And so Andy and Cole and I are going to be doing a sermon series on the book of Jonah. Uh, And we're excited to do this. This is the first time the three of us of elders have gotten to work together on a sermon series to preach through a book of scripture. And it's been a good learning experience for us. And we hope that it'll be an encouragement to you too. And uh, today we're going to talk about pursuit or the idea of being pursued or being chased after. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing in that it can either be a really, really good thing or it can be a really, really bad thing. Being pursued can take many different forms. You know, we all love to be pursued by a company for that job that we've been wanting or by our boss for a promotion Nothing feels better than as a single person being pursued by that special someone that maybe you've had your eye on for a while. Or as a spouse, it reaffirms your commitment to each other when you continue to pursue each other. As a child, it comforts you when, you, uh, when your parents pursue you and when they want to spend time with you. One famous story of pursuit is a story of a missionary by the name of David Livingston. That name may ring a bell Uh, To some of you, Livingston was a British explorer and missionary in Africa in the mid-1800s. He would wander around Africa, learn new languages, explore famous landmarks like the Nile River, and tell people about Jesus along the way. At one point, he lost contact with the outside world, and no one knew where he was. People were so concerned about his whereabouts that the New York Herald newspaper hired a man named Henry Morton Stanley to go to Africa and to try and find him. Think about how hard that is. Africa is a very large continent with many remote areas. And if you think this would be hard today, which it would be hard today, remember this is 1869 when this guy is given this task. And he spent the next three years relentlessly following the tracks of Dr. Livingston. And finally, in November of 1871, He found him on the shores of the great African lake, Tanganyika. And legend has it that Mr. Stanley approached Dr. Livingston and said the now famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume? I can imagine that the relief that he must have felt when he finally found him and knew that he could finally quit trudging around Africa after three long years. That's an impressive pursuit. But then there's also ways in which uh, it is not so great to be pursued. Uh, We can all remember when we're kids, when we get caught doing that thing that we know we're not supposed to be doing, and you get that look from your mom or your dad, and you know they are going to pursue you, and it is not going to be a pleasant pursuit for you at all. Or that feeling you get maybe you're a little late to work that day, and you're driving a little bit faster than you're supposed to be driving, and you look behind you, and all of a sudden there's some flashing lights going on behind you, and You're getting pursued again in a way that might make your pocketbook a little bit lighter than it was before. That's not a great way to be pursued either. Uh, Carrie and the kids and I were up in Canada with her family a couple of weeks ago, and we planned to go fishing at this little lake. And when we got there, the lake was closed. So we asked one of the guys who was working there, hey, what's going on? Why is the lake closed? And they said, well, a couple days ago, there was a man and his kid out fishing at the lake. 
and a grizzly bear had come down. And the grizzly bear was on one side of the lake, and the man and his kid were on the other side of the lake. And if the man and the kid would move this way, the grizzly bear would move this way. And if they tried to go that way around the lake, the grizzly bear would go that way around the lake. It kept pursuing them and had them trapped. Thankfully, no one was hurt. They were able to get the man and the boy out, but the grizzly bear was still in the area, and so they weren't letting people uh, near the lake. So that's a way that, oh man, I can't even imagine being pursued like that. That'd be terrifying. So in our sermon today, we will see that Jonah is being pursued by God, and we will see that just like in our examples, it can be a terrifying experience, worse than your worst nightmares, and it can also be a life-saving experience. So what do we know about the book of Jonah? Let's get a little bit of context before we get into our text. We don't know who the author of Jonah was, and we don't even know the exact date in which the book was written, but if we look at the rest of scripture, we can still get some background for our story. We see in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, verse 25, that Jonah was a prophet of God. An Old Testament prophet was someone who received direct messages from God and then gave them to the people. And we also learn that Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam was king of Israel during the early part of the 8th century B.C., so Jonah's ministry probably took uh, part around that time, 750 to 800 years or so before Christ in that range. This was well after the 12 tribes of Israel had divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, which occurred after King Solomon in about 930 B.C. Uh, during that split, all of the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin went to the north and Judah and Benjamin went to the south and they, uh, they split into two kingdoms, and they had different kings. And during that same time period as Jonah, several hundred miles away from Israel, the Assyrian Empire existed, and at the core of, of, of Assyria was their capital, a city called Nineveh. Nineveh is in present-day uh, Mosul, Iraq, and we'll learn a lot more about the Assyrians and about the, uh, Nineveh next week. From uh, Andy, all we need to know really at this point is that Nineveh is a city of, of Gentiles. These are non-Jews. They're not part of God's chosen people. And as such, it's not surprising for us to learn that the lives that they were living were not in line with God. And we will see from our text today that God has taken notice of this. So this leads us to our points for our sermon today. First, we'll look at how Jonah flees from God in the first three verses of chapter 1. Then we'll see how God pursues Jonah in the rest of chapter 1. And finally, we'll look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. So first, Jonah flees from God. Our text starts by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So God speaks to his prophet Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh and to call out Against it. God wants the Ninevites to know that he sees the evil that they're doing and that they need to repent and turn to him or that they will receive his judgment. This is a reminder to us that God's power and authority is in no way limited to the people of Israel or to the location of Israel. God is telling Jonah that he sees this evil going on hundred miles, hundreds of miles away. So how does Jonah respond to the command that he receives from God? Verse 3 tells us. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah doesn't like what God was calling him to do. And at least in chapter 1 here, it doesn't really tell us why. The rest of the book, well, and and Cole will get into that, especially in chapter 4 in a couple of weeks. All we know at this point is that Jonah hated what God had called him to do so much that he disobeyed and he ran. And not only did he run, but he ran in the complete opposite direction from where he was supposed to go. Uh, Can we get the map up there? Perfect. I have a laser pointer right here. Hey, it works. All right. Okay. So here's Joppa, where the boat would have taken off from uh, there. Here's Nineveh up here. Tarshish, we, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was. There's debate among scholars and archaeologists where Tarshish was. It may have been in present-day Spain. There's some that are also think it may have been all the way up here in present-day England. Regardless as to where it is, it doesn't really matter. The point is, Jonah was going as far away from God as he possibly could. That's what he's doing. Um, I can't read this passage and, and run this story through my head without remembering when Carrie uh, and uh, I were teaching the kids when they were little from this Jesus Storybook Bible that some of you might have seen. And in this story, when they're talking about Jonah, it says, Jonah goes to Joppa and he asks for one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And that's what he was doing. Get me away from Nineveh. I want a ticket as far away from Nineveh as I can. And Jonah, of all people, he should realize how foolish this is, right? He He's a prophet of God. He knows that God is everywhere. After all, God just told him that he sees the sin going on in Nineveh. Is he not going to see Jonah's sin too, just like he saw theirs? So how does God respond? Let's go and look at our second point. God pursues Jonah. Verse 4 tells us, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Uh Uh-oh. Ah, that didn't start out very well for him, did it? Jonah, immediately upon fleeing, is reminded of the lessons that David teaches us in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And to David, as he seeks and follows God, this truth that God is everywhere and sees everything is very comforting. But in this moment, it's not very comforting for those who are stuck on this boat with Jonah. In verses 5 through 7, we see that the men on the ship are trying anything that they can think of to try to get the storm to stop and to save themselves. In verse 5, it tells us that they each cried out to their God, but nothing happened. Their gods couldn't calm the storm. Since that didn't work, they tried to throw cargo overboard, and meanwhile, they learned And not everyone is up above, but Jonah has actually gone down into the inner part of the ship and decided it's time for a little nap. Let's take take a little nap. So the captain comes down and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. So Jonah wakes up, and as he does, they decide they need to find out who's to blame for this storm that is happening. So they cast lots. In verse 7, and not a surprise to us at all, the lot falls on Jonah. I'm not recommending that you use this method, but God in his providence revealed it to those on the ship. But we already knew that Jonah was the problem. So in verse 8, they question Jonah. They ask him, why is this happening to us? 
What's your job? Where are you from? What's your ethnicity? And Jonah answers them in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah tells them who he is, and more importantly, who his God is. And what he says, he also when he says this, he also acknowledges that his plan to go to Tarshish was doomed from the start. The God he is running from is the God who made the sea and the dry land. Yet Jonah hops on a boat which floats on the sea to try to get away from the God who he knows made the land and the sea. It's not a very good plan. It was doomed to fail from the beginning. And this is a good reminder of something actually Ron mentioned this, uh, this morning when we were talking about sin. Our sin doesn't make sense. When we sin, it's irrational. It may seem rational to us. It may seem like a good idea at the time, but it's never actually what's best for us, and it's never what's best for the people around us. When we lie or we cheat or we steal, when we give in to our anger or lust, when we gossip or when we're prideful, we're not doing what is best for our own flourishing, and we're causing harm to ourselves and to others. And that's exactly where Jonah finds himself, as his sin has not only now put his life, his life in danger, but all the others aboard the ship. So when they, uh, the men on the ship realize who Jonah is and who his God is, and that Jonah has disobeyed him, they respond in verse 10. It says, they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? This is when their faces got really red and smoke started coming out of the ears. Dude, why would you do this and then get on our boat and put us in danger? What are you doing? They're mad at Jonah, and they are rightly terrified of God. So they try to devise an action plan. The storm's not getting better. It's getting worse. And Jonah tells them that the only way to calm the storm would be to throw him overboard. But they're not ready to go quite to that level yet. They want to try to find any other way. So they try to row back to the shore, but that doesn't work either. So finally, they pray to God in verse 14. And they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They realize there's no way around doing what Jonah had said they should do. They could either throw him overboard or they can go down with him. Those are their choices at this point. They pray that God wouldn't find them guilty for Jonah losing his life because God hasn't given them a choice. You want him thrown overboard, God? They ask. Okay, here he is. But this isn't on us. So in verse 15, they go ahead and they throw him overboard. And what happens? The storm stops. Not only does it stop, it says it immediately stops. And then what they do? It says the men feared the Lord exceedingly, exceedingly. Which do you think was scarier for them? The start and the progression of the storm? Or it immediately stopping the, fact, the second they threw Jonah overboard? They're both terrifying in different ways. And it leads them to do exactly what it should lead them to do and lead us to do. It leads them to worship of God, the text tells us they offer sacrifices and they make vows to him. It's ironic, isn't it? That while God's prophet is disobeying him, God was pleased with the obedience and the worship he received from these Gentiles aboard the ship. 
This is again the theme that we will see in chapter 3 as we continue on in Jonah. And if we're honest, I think this is where the story of Jonah's life should end, right here. This should be the end. It would make a lot of sense if verse 17 said something along the lines of, And Jonah perished in the sea as just punishment for disobeying God. God would have been completely just to do that. But verse 17 takes a very unexpected turn and tells us, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, if you don't have questions after hearing or reading something like that, I don't know when you would ever have questions, because that is a plot twist. I know a lot of us have heard this story a million times, but wow, did not see that one coming. And some of the questions might be, wait, well, what kind of fish is this? The answer is we really don't know. The Hebrew word here just means great fish. The next question often is, how on earth did he stay alive in a fish's belly for three days and three nights? My goodness. And my answer to that, I, I think, is pretty simple, that if this is the same God that can create storms and stop storms and direct giant fish at his command, then I think he can probably find a way to keep Jonah alive inside the fish for three days and three nights. That seems well within his power to do so. Uh, those questions are fun to think about, but they really aren't too important to our story. But what is important is that God provides a way of salvation for Jonah in the fish. What an amazingly compassionate response by God as he continues his pursuit of Jonah. Jonah didn't do anything to deserve this lifeline that he was given. And while Jonah was inside the fish, he had some time to think, to look at himself and to spend some time in prayer with God, which is what he does in chapter 2. And that'll take us to our third point. And as, as we look at chapter 2, we're not going to cover it exactly verse by verse. We're going to kind of jump around because there's some different themes that we see at different points that are scattered throughout Jonah's prayer. Uh, so forgive me for the bouncing around in the text. Uh, first, we're going to start in verse 3, actually, where Jonah acknowledges that it was God who cast him into the raging waters. In the first place, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. There's no mystery here. For Jonah, this wasn't a coincidental storm. This was a result of his sin against God by not obeying and going to Nineveh. And then he goes on to describe how terrifying it was for him after he was thrown overboard into the waters. The second part of verse 3 says, And the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5 says, The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountain. As a kid or maybe even as an adult, have you been swimming and down under the water and then you tried to come up and there was something blocking you and so you couldn't come up and get air right away? I remember a few times as a, uh, as a kid swimming in my aunt and uncle's pool. Maybe I'd be down diving, getting something at the bottom and you come up and someone would be laying on some sort of flotation on top of you and you'd come, oh man, I can't get up for air. And your first instinct in that moment is to panic. Oh man, I can't breathe. What am I going to do? And of course, all you need to do is swim a few feet to the side and then you're okay. But that wasn't the case for Jonah. The waves are crashing over him time and time again. He's getting knocked well below the surface and then struggles to come up for a quick breath. And while this is happening, he's got seaweed wrapped around him, making it even more difficult to breathe. 
And Jonah tells us that he thought he was going to die. He thought his life was going to end there. First part of verse 5 says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. But in his desperation, in that moment, Jonah cried out to God. Verse 2 tells us that I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And we will see in verse 6 that the Lord is gracious to answer his cry for help. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, meaning he, he thinks he's about to die. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah worships God for saving him from certain death. In verse 4 and verse 7, we see this theme of God's temple. Verse 7 says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. And verse 4 says, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The temple is a place where God's presence dwells. And as he is praying, Jonah is, of course, far away from the temple. He's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet God still heard him. God's presence wasn't limited to the temple. He's everywhere, as we saw earlier in Psalm 139. We've seen now that Jonah's been pursued by God in a terrifying way, and now he's also been pursued by God in a comforting and life-saving way. And as he prays, he looks forward to returning to the physical temple someday uh, to be able to worship the Lord there since the Lord has redeemed him from the waters. And Jonah gives a, a real interesting verse uh, in verse 8. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope for steadfast love. Now, all of us want to be loved. That's something that we all just naturally as humans crave and, and desire. Yet it's so easy for us to go around looking for love in the world while ignoring God. The pursuits of this life, whether that be money or status or relationships, education, they don't offer us steadfast love. What they offer us is very fleeting, yet we're all regularly tempted to continually chase after these things. And Jonah, as he's reflecting on his own sin, reminds us, don't look to these vain idols. Steadfast love is only available from God. So quit looking other places. You're only hurting yourself. And Jonah ends his prayer by thanking God in verse 9 with a big exclamation point as he cries out that salvation belongs to the Lord. This could be the theme of all of Scripture, really, couldn't it? That verse. We'll think about that more here in just a minute. And as Jonah finishes his prayer, the Lord commands the fish and it spits Jonah out. On dry land. He's been saved from certain death, a certain death that was entirely his fault by the Lord who would not stop pursuing him. It's an amazing story of redemption where God is the hero. He is the all-powerful. He pursues his disobedient prophet. He brings him to repentance and delivers him from death. Yeah, it's really an amazing story and clearly one that has lived on well after the time of Jonah. In fact, we see Jesus himself mentioning Jonah in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 12, 
Jesus is talking to some scribes and Pharisees, and they ask him for a sign to prove who he is. And this is a silly request by them, as Jesus, by this point, has already done many miracles. He's already shown them his power and authority. And so Jesus responds to them and says, I'm, I'm not going to give you a sign, except for one thing. I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, we have the advantage of looking back on Jesus' life, and we know what he was telling them. You want a sign? Jesus was saying, I'll give you a sign. Just like Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, I will die for three days and three nights. And just like that fish under my sovereign hand could not hold Jonah, death will not be able to hold me, and I will rise victorious over sin and death. That should show you that I am God. I deserve your worship and your obedience. Let's take a minute now and not look at Jonah or look at the Pharisees, but let's look at our own hearts and let's look at ourselves. There have been times in all our lives, haven't there, when we have known what the right thing is to do, and yet we have chosen to run the other way, away from God, instead of towards him, just like Jonah did. We run away from steadfast love of God and towards vain idols. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And scripture is clear about what we deserve for going astray for our sin. Just like Jonah, we deserve to die in the storm. We deserve death, but not only physical death, but we deserve eternal, the eternal wrath of God on us for our sin. It's way worse than being trapped by a grizzly bear, as, as uh, terrifying as that may be. That's how serious our sin is to a holy God. And just like Jonah's story deserved to end with him drowning in the sea, ours deserves to end with us receiving the punishment that we earned for our sin. The good news, though, is that there's a second half to Isaiah 53, 6. We just read the first half, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. But the second half tells us, and the Lord laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus received the punishment on the cross for the sins of people like Jonah and people like you, people like me. And he offers forgiveness to all of us. It can be received by anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and turns from their sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as God provided the fish to save Jonah, Jesus provides salvation to all those who believe through his perfect life, through his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection. And in him is the only place where we can truly experience steadfast love, just as Jonah prayed. So know this today, no matter where you're at, in life, you are not beyond the pursuit of God. He knows you better than anyone else. He created you. He knows all the sins you've committed, all the mistakes you've made. 
He knows where you're at. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what your weaknesses are, what your fears are. So if you've spent your life pursuing this world, turn to Jesus. Quit running away from him and run to him. Put your faith in him and experience the steadfast love that only our Savior can provide. And as you begin your walk with God, join us every Sunday like this and every Wednesday night for Cultivate. We'd love to have you surround yourself with people who have been following God a little longer than you. Seek godly counsel from them and grow in Christ together. That's, that's what the church is for, to help us grow in Christ together so we don't have to go through this journey alone. It's a wonderful gift from God. And if you are a follower of Christ, but you know that there's an area in your life where you have not been following him. And, and if we're honest, this is true of all of us, right? To varying degrees, because we're all sinners. Turn from that area in which you haven't been following Christ and turn towards him. And even saying that, we acknowledge we can't do this on our own power, but only through the power of God in us, growing us and changing us. This is called sanctification, where we grow, grow more and more set apart from the, uh, from the world and more and more like Christ. And if you aren't sure what areas you might not be following Christ in, pray, just like Jonah did. Ask God to reveal them to you so that you can grow, but then just don't be surprised when he answers. It's good news, isn't it, that God relently pursues us, just like he did Jonah. May we run to him, and may we receive his steadfast love. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.